never wanted to be in a fancy metropolitan broadcast facility where the most thought-provoking thing within view is an occasional four-car pileup on the freeway below. We like being miles from nowhere, in the middle of a vineyard that cannot be seen from the little two-lane road on the other side of that rise. Our barn has awesome acoustics and was built with hand tools over a hundred years ago. Nonetheless, we've got some really state-of-the-art broadcast technology inside. And our wine cellar wants a root cellar that is absolutely packed with wine we've collected or been given by friends. Welcome. You have just set foot on Grape Encounters Radio Property, where we don't believe in no trespassing signs. But let's make this our little secret. Oh, and that wine is protected by the sweetest-looking golden retriever who dated a Doberman for a while, so don't get any ideas. And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter, and I feel sorry for anybody that tunes into this show just a little bit late today because they're going to think they're on the wrong program because we're going to talk about something that we never talk about on Grape Encounters. Heaven forbid we should ever talk about beer on a wine show, but that is exactly what we're going to do today because I had the opportunity recently to get to know a fellow by the name of Jeff Smith. And Jeff is the producer, director of a documentary called Craft, the California Beer Documentary. As I got to know more about Jeff and after seeing the documentary, you know, just getting a better understanding of what is going on in the craft beer movement, I realized that beer and wine are not competitors They're really brother and sister, or brother and brother perhaps, or at least very close cousins. So I've asked Jeff to come in, and he's here right now. Jeff, welcome. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Super nice having you in, Jeff Smith. You're sitting on your end of the studio with a beer. (laughs) Yep. And this is not, I mean, it's not TV, right? This wasn't planned. You just asked for a beer. And I'm sitting here with a glass of red wine, and, you know, it wasn't accidental. I mean, it was accidental, actually. Is beer your go-to beverage? Yeah, for a lot long time I was a spirits guy. I definitely still enjoy my whiskeys, but after doing this project and all the research that I uh, encountered, I uh, am a full-blown beer man. Beer guy. Did people feel sorry for you for having to do that research? I know they always feel sorry for me to have to drink so much wine in order to do my job correctly. Yeah, they really did feel bad for me, so bad that they sent cases home with me. Ah, that's awesome. Well, first, let's talk about the documentary because you did something really crazy. You decided to go to how many craft breweries in what period of time? So I took one month, May of 2014, and I hit every corner of California. And I do mean every corner. In that month, I drove 5,000 miles and I interviewed at 80 breweries all throughout the state, big and small. 80 breweries? Yep. And did you go there with appointments or did you just show up? Oh, yes, definitely appointments. I didn't have that kind of time to fool around with trying to nail down when and where. We figured all that out ahead of time. Really? So that had to take a lot of time. That was probably the hardest part was just arranging all of that, right? 
Yeah, until I went to the editing part, and I had okay, yeah. 80, 80 hours of footage to sift through to make an hour-and-a-half, two-hour documentary. Oh, my gosh. So 80 different craft breweries, and the reason, obviously, that I have you in the studio today is because I really started to recognize more than I think ever what the similarities are between beer and wine. Now, you're a beer guy, and you know the beer scene you know, probably right now as well as anybody, and wine is my thing. Yep. And, and I love beer, but I, I'm loving it more now because I'm noticing just how similar beer and wine really are. And the fact that now we have these beer tasting events that never existed before where they're actually doing beer pairing with food just the same way that we do pairing with wine. Sure. And that's become just a really cool, popular thing to do. So why California, first of all? Is it the sheer volume of craft breweries that exist in California? Yeah. So let me back up a little bit. So when I started doing research for the documentary, I was going to just do a U.S. craft beer kind of documentary. Quickly realized that that had been done a lot of times. And living in California, doing that research, I quickly realized that I don't need to leave the state. Uh, it kind of got its start here uh, with Anchor Steam in the 1800s during the gold rush. Well, let me back up for a second. Anchor Steam goes back to the 1800s. Yep. yep. I had no idea. But what about brands like, uh, maybe you might not know the answer to this, but brands like Coors, they've been around for a long time, right? Yeah. It, don't know when, but Anchor Steam still is considered a craft beer. Is that correct? Sure craft beer definition is constantly changing to allow more beer produced. So it's a it's a sliding it, it, scale, if you want to call it that. Is there a working definition for craft beer? Yeah. When I interviewed, it was about 60,000 barrels a year, and I think it's up to 100 now. Don't quote me on that, but it it's just keeps rising. So who sets the definition? Um, mm. Is there an association? Or yeah, there the, is. The okay. Brewers Association. Because um, you've got kind of the same thing in, in wineries as well, but I think it's the, the same situation that it's a very loose definition. Right. I, uh, I, there are some hard rules, like at least 50% of the brewery needs to be owned privately. It can't be owned by It can't be a publicly right. traded right. corporation. Right. Um, and even since I did my interviews... Some that I've interviewed aren't considered craft beer anymore because of sales. Probably because of you. Because <laughs> you, you put this documentary together, they became so popular that you knocked them out of that field, I guess. I would love to think that. <laughs> okay. So 80, why, first of all, was that a number that you had in your head that you wanted to do 80? Or is that just what it wound up being? And was there a reason why you were trying to do it in 30 days? Yeah. So at the time, there were about 400 breweries in the state. I knew... 400? There was no way I was going to research at oh, 400. 400, at yeah. 400. Yeah. That was just ridiculous. Uh, so I just started by starting with the major cities and kind of just branched out from there and made a route. I, we had a plan when we left LA. We, we knew exactly where we were going, when we were going, where we, when we needed to be in the next place. Here's the thing that baffles me a bit. You point out the fact that what's happening in the craft beer business seems so identical to me to what's been happening for many years now in the wine business. You know, there was a time when there was just red and white wine. Right. That was, you know, 40, 50 years ago in California, it was pretty much the case. And then there became different kinds of reds and different kinds of whites. And I'm exaggerating a little bit. But now there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of different SKUs out there. The variety of wine is just crazy. It wasn't that long ago that I think for a lot of people, beer was beer. Yep. And now it's the same story. We've got 
so many different varieties, things that you can't even imagine that they're working with with beer. And in a sense, I think it seems that beer offers the brewer more flexibility than wine does in the sense that you can put a lot of things in beer that you would never put in wine. Yes, for the good and the bad. For the good and the bad. Yeah. Okay, so the bad being what? This is my humble opinion, but I don't know. Certain things... Don't belong in beer. Don't belong in beer. I don't know. So do you think that the people that are making the beer are sometimes going too far? Yes, and I think that there will be a bit of a reset. I think it's kind of a fad with, you know, vodka and whiskeys and stuff where they're starting to flavor those things. It's disgusting to me, actually. Yep. And I've yet to find, honestly, a flavored spirit that I liked. And they put so much sugar in them. Yeah. Generally speaking, their trick is to add sugar to cover up things that badly made spirit, really. Right. Same thing going on in, in beer. But some of it works, though, right? Absolutely. You know, you put a little coffee in beer. Sure. Not so bad. Yeah. You know, some of the citruses with an IPA is heaven for me. So, you know, going back to just, I think, four or five years ago, wine became the number one adult beverage in America. Nobody thought that wine would knock beer off of its pedestal. And now I think when you look at how beer is being marketed, how beer is being made, the varieties of beer, how we look at beer the same way we look at wine, you know, the characteristics in the beer and we start describing it with the same tasting notes that we use for wine, it seems like beer is regaining a lot of its ground yeah. by doing exactly what cost it ground. You know, breweries are doing a lot of things that wineries do. They're aging their beer in wine barrels or uh, whiskey barrels. And so what's with that? Because it's all been about freshness in recent years, and now they're uh, aging the beer. Sure. Aged beer, can just like a good wine, can sit around and get better. The fresh beer is more like the IPAs and stuff with a lot of hops because the hop flavor dissipates pretty quickly. It's kind of the difference between, for instance, a white wine that you drink it you know, right away after it's made versus a red wine that you might want to lay down. Absolutely. So is there a different style of beer that will age versus ones that you want to drink right away? Sure. The IPA you got to drink right away, is that right? Yeah, the fresher the better, always. But more like a stout or a porter, something, you know, kind of heavier that they, you know, they just sit in the barrels for a year, two years, three years, five years, and there's a price. It costs more, you know, but they're pretty damn good. <laughs> it's funny, when you when you walked into the studio, there was a winemaker in here. We introduced you to him, and he pointed out the fact that they actually sell their wine barrels to beer makers now. Yep. Crazy. All right. Hey, listen, we're talking to Jeff Smith. He is the producer and director uh, of the California beer documentary called Craft. By the way, you can watch it on Amazon. You can get it all kinds of places. I became familiar with it at a really major film festival that I'm associated with. And we're going to talk more about uh, beer following in the footsteps of wine. Or was it the other way around? It's a chicken and egg conversation. And we're having it with Jeff Smith, the director of Craft, the California beer documentary. We'll return in just a second. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. This segment of Grape Encounters is brought to you by my number one wine discovery of 2016 the awesome gold medal winning wines of the Cardello Winery. From the very first sip, you'll understand why these astounding, nicely priced Cardello wines are swiftly becoming a cult classic, just as I predicted. Handcrafted and stunning, you can get yours at CardelloWinery.com. That's CardelloWinery.com. 
or find more information at GrapeEncounters.com. Beer and wine, beer and wine, my mother drinks it all the time. Beer and wine, beer and wine, all my mother does is drink beer and wine. Like certain wines, he's syrupy, sweet, and has long legs. Here's David Wilson. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and I got to tell you something that I did very recently in the Grape Encounters Emporium, our wine bar, which, by the way, we built for you all. A lot of people come to the Grape Encounters Emporium from all over the country. It's really cool and hang out with us. But one of the things I've been experimenting with over there, I've actually been combining beer and wine in the same glass. crazy, but it works in some cases. Beer and wine are really, really close siblings, I'm discovering. They're much closer than we realize. And so today I thought, you know, we'd spend a little time talking about beer, especially after I got a chance to meet Jeff Smith. He's the producer and director, the creator of Craft, the California beer documentary. What possesses a guy, Jeff, to get in his car? You have like a young family, right? (laughs) Yes. You get in the car and you you drive to 80 breweries in 30 days. Somebody and had to do it. I'm guessing you had to do a lot of spitting, right? Do you, do you spit like we do in the wine business no. when you're tasting beer? No. You so, did not spit. I did not. So, oh, there's a big differentiation well, so between. I, so it wasn't just me driving. I had a partner in production that did all the driving, and she did all of the interviewing. So I was kind of running the camera, the audio, the lights, everything behind the camera. So I was allowed to let's call it research, throughout the interview, pre, post, and everything in between, because I had a built-in driver. So, well, that's good. And we call them designated drivers. And, you know, you do not attempt to do things like this without one of those. Absolutely. You know, when you're out tasting, don't be afraid to spit. And if you are going to swallow, then you need to have one of those. What is it that you learned that really surprised you the most in making the documentary. Was there an epiphany that you had? Absolutely. Without a doubt, uh, what really surprised me was the the camaraderie between brewers. I really expected, like most businesses, that they're com- competitors trying to one-up each other. What I found out, though, is they're all kind of in it for the greater good, to spread the word on craft beer and to, you know, take market share from macro beer, the, the big boys that have all the marketing dollars and that kind of stuff. So how do they feel about wine? I mean, do you think that the folks who make beer, do you feel like they're siblings with the wine industry? Do they appreciate the wine industry? I mean, they obviously borrow from the wine industry like mad, but they don't have the contempt I'm hoping, for the wine industry that they probably have for the giant breweries. Absolutely. Do they have contempt for the big guys? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I you, mean, you rolled your eyes there well, for a second. So I take the point in the documentary that, yeah, you know, those guys do make the other kind of beer that most people still drink. But along with that, the macro beers really, they got their science down and they've provided a lot of information for these smaller guys. Okay, so this is what's so interesting. You'll hear the exact same story in the wine business, that the big labels, like, you know, the gallows of the world, you know, I never allow anybody to criticize companies like that because they were the ones who funded the research that made everything better. Right. I mean, and, you and can, you're saying it's the same in beer. For sure. You can taste a Budweiser here in San Luis Obispo and it's going to taste the same in Japan or anywhere else across the world because they have their science down. They, and that's the biggest thing with beer is making it taste the same from batch to batch. And that's really hard to do. So the big guys, they do all the research. They spend all the money figuring it out, and then the young Turks come along, 
and they borrow from that and create this very uh, personalized product. Yep. You feel, obviously, that the beer industry is going too far, though, in terms of how many variations that they put out there, that some of the folks that are experimenting are just going way over the top. Yes, that, and there's a lot of bad beer out there. I'm going to say it. There's uh, a lot of bad beer out there. There's a lot of bad beer. So of the 80 breweries that you went to, first of all, how did you choose them, and what percentage did you think was not up to snuff? So I picked them all because of, you know, I really wanted to hit the whole state. At the time, there were 80 breweries in San Diego. I think it's about 150 now, and I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to get out and hit every corner, so I saw, you know, who I'd be able to drive a half hour off that route or whatever it was. So in a sense, it was random selection. Absolutely. Okay. There was also doing research, you know, beer lists and and breweries, tons of breweries that I hadn't heard of because I wasn't that informed with craft beer that, you know, we had to hit. There wasn't a question about it. So then of those that you went to, what percentage would you say made beers that you just plain wouldn't drink? One brewery. One? One. Out of 80. Yeah. But yet you just said a minute ago that there was a lot of bad beer out there. Are we talking about the big ones? Is that what we're talking about? No. When I say that there's a lot of bad beer, that's what a lot of breweries say. That's what they say. Okay. Yeah. So that because there's so many breweries now. When I did this three years ago, there were 400. Three years later, it's now 800 breweries in the state. What everybody says is, you know, the good stuff rises to the top. If you're making crappy beer, you're not going to be around because there's so much beer on the market that why would you continue to go back and drink crappy beer when you don't have to? What was the characteristic that you felt was most common from brewmaster to brewmaster, you know, that, that personality characteristic that you felt they shared in common? Sure. You know, 99%. They're all really down-to-earth people that are really just trying to make great beer. No ego. No ego. See, that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't necessarily get about winemakers. Same thing. The winemakers that I know, virtually all of them, except for one, actually, and it's funny. It's just there's only one winemaker that I have ever met that I thought was an arrogant – I'm not going to say it, but just arrogant. And funny enough, he was a winemaker who worked for a really big label that Mm -hmm. doesn't make good wine. And everybody would recognize the label, but it happens to be one. I just, I can't stand their wine. But yeah, they're, they're artisans. They are very humble people. They put their personality into their product and you can taste it. Yeah. Do you think that beer like wine is a reflection of the personality of the person who made it? Do you, do you see that connection? Yeah. Like when you're sitting there with a man or a woman who makes beer, do you see why they made that particular beer because of their personality characteristics? Yes, but at the end of the day, they do want to make styles that are going to sell because okay. it, it is a business. Okay, I get it. Listen, the documentary is Craft, the California beer documentary. You can uh, watch it on Amazon. You can download it on iTunes. Google Play has it. There's a trailer online, and you can find all of this at the website, what, craftbeerdoc.com. Yep. Hey, I'm so glad you came in, Jeff. Thanks I, for I really, having me. I was really, really uh, excited to have you in because I just think, you know, it's fun to watch what's going on with beer because beer's doing it right, and they're doing it exactly the way wine's done it. And we're just getting some great beverages out there. Now, if only the spirit industry would stop making this <laughs> flavored junk, right? Yes. Let's hope, it, <laughs> let's hope it's a trend. Do you hate it? I despise it. I despise it as well. But watch the whiskeys. There's a <laughs> lot of really, really cool whiskeys being made right now. And that's the fun part. All right, Jeff. Thanks very much again. Craft, the California beer documentary. 
And if you can't remember the website, just Google it. We're going to be back with more Grape Encounters. And I'm going to tell you about an invention that I am uh, releasing that I have been very involved with. And I can't wait to share this with you when we return with Grape Encounters Radio. Grape Encounters Radio. Wine talk as comfortable as an old pair of sneakers, which explains why it's got lots of soul. There are 3,492 rules for properly drinking wine. David Wilson is on a mission to break all of them. Here's David. I'm creating a brand new invention. Now, I am so excited, so delighted to share with you a story that I've wanted to share with you ever since we came on the air, which has been about eight years now, 400 episodes just about. We're on episode number 399 this week. You know, many, many times I've shared with you stories about new inventions in the world of wine, inventions like the Coravin, which completely changes the way that we enjoy wine, inventions like the Oak Bottle, a device that speeds up the aging process of the wine from years to literally hours. But today, I get to share with you a story about an invention that was my idea a long time ago, and it has to do with aeration of wine. But before I tell you exactly what it is, I just want to talk about aeration and why it's so important to wine. You know, several years ago now, there was a product that came onto the market, and it's a product that I really love and respect. It's called the Venturi. And I imagine a lot of you, if not most of you, have one of these devices. If you really, really love wine, you probably have one. They've sold literally millions of them all around the world. But it is an acrylic funnel that you pour wine through, and as you pour the wine through the funnel, it draws air into the funnel, and it adds air to the wine. It does a pretty good job. And in fact, I've used this device for a really long time. But there were a lot of, I felt, downfalls. But it was certainly way better than anything else that we have. Well, aeration is so important because adding air to wine is kind of like putting miracle Grow on your plants and on your lawn. Have you ever noticed when you, you spray the miracle Grow literally within a day or two days, everything is just brighter and greener and more vibrant? Well, aeration of wine works pretty much the same way. The minute that you add air to wine, the wine literally blooms. It explodes with flavor. The tannins are softened. The acids are not quite as harsh. What it does to the balance of the wine can be spectacular. But the problem is aeration is not easily achieved. You know, for many years, the way that we aerated wine was to pour it into a decanter. We eventually learned that the decanter bottom should be very, very wide and very flat so that you could get as much surface contact of air to wine. Now, when the Venturi came out, it sped the process up because, you know, first of all, you can't just pour wine into a decanter and then pour it into your glass. A lot of people do that, but that isn't the best way to aerate wine because it takes time. In fact, if you don't leave the wine in the decanter for at least a half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour, it's really not going to do much good. Now, one of my favorite things that people do when it comes to aerating wine is they'll pull the cork out of the bottle and they'll say, let's just let this baby breathe. That doesn't work. Stop doing that. 
the only thing that's breathing is probably that first inch maybe of wine that's in the neck of the bottle. The rest of the wine in the bottle is not going to get any air. It's going to take a long time. It's going to literally take overnight, if then, to be able to get enough air on the wine. And by that time, you've ruined the wine. Now, too much air is also a bad thing, and that's the problem with a lot of the aeration devices that have existed out there is they are one-size-fits-all. But not all wine needs to breathe. Not all wine needs to be aerated, and it really depends on the varietal. It depends on the age of the wine. A wine that's very old has already had some air seep into the bottle, and that alone is probably enough aeration. If you add more air to that wine, you could definitely ruin it. You know, big wines require probably a lot more air than a softer wine like a Pinot. There were so many reasons why my mind went down this road. And so now I'm going to tell you exactly what we did. And I say we because it took investors, it took engineers to create what we now call the Infusair. And it is a product that is going on the market today. Now, before I tell you any more, there's one thing I really need to say, and that is we never, never try to prostitute this show. That's not why we're here. Now, we often recommend things that I think that you ought to buy, you know, things that are going to make your life better. So I feel just a little bit cautious, you know, promoting my own product on the show because we are not an infomercial, plain and simple. But this product is really an outgrowth of my believing that one of the most important, essential things that we can do to enjoy our wine could definitely, definitely be done better. We just had to figure out how. And so I toiled over this for the longest time. You know, what I wanted to do was, first of all, find a way to aerate wine quickly, very, very quickly. You know, not in minutes, but in seconds if possible. The second thing I wanted to do was I wanted to do it cleanly. I didn't want to have to pour it through anything or pour the wine out of the bottle at all. I wanted to aerate the wine right inside the bottle. But most importantly, I wanted to be able to regulate just how much air went into the bottle. I wanted to have complete and total control over it. Oh, yes, there's one other thing. No batteries, no cartridges, nothing else that you have to buy, something as simple as a kitchen tool, but it was going to have to be sophisticated. And so I got a team together, investors and thinking people that could really work this out, including a really awesome aerospace engineer who really took the concept that I had and made it work. And I'm so excited to share with the world the Infusair. Now, I've already shared the product with a number of experts, and I mean really, really top experts, including people that have invented the most important devices in the wine world. And unanimously, everybody that has ever used this product has been absolutely, totally, and completely overwhelmed by how well it works. I get the chills every time I demonstrate the product to somebody and they look at me and they're just so wowed because you can take like a $10 bottle of wine and you can take the Infusair, that's the product's name, and use it on the wine, and it suddenly tastes like a 20 or 30 or even $40 bottle of wine. And what it will do for a really decent wine will just blow you away. It's just that exciting. So here's what it is. 
It's a beautiful metal device, shiny, silver, gorgeous, the kind of thing that you would see at Williams and Sonoma or Sir La Table or, you know, a top kitchen store or bar store. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it sits over with a collar the top of your wine bottle. It has a handle that's, you know, sort of like the handle on a really quality racing bicycle or motorcycle. And then a tube that goes down and at the end of the tube is an infuser that is made out of a material that is used in surgical applications. It's really sophisticated. It's got millions of tiny microscopic holes. You cannot see them. You can't even physically blow through these holes, but they're there, believe me. And when you pump the device, it charges it with air and it infuses the air into the bottle. It's really amazing. And the bottle doesn't spill over and it only takes like three or four pumps and you're done. We're talking a matter of just a couple of seconds and a bottle of wine is completely and totally transformed. Now, if you don't want to aerate the entire bottle with the infuser, it's really simple. You can just stick the end of the wand I like to call it the magic wand, into a glass of wine and pump it a couple of times, you're done. Anyway, it's so exciting. It is so incredibly amazing. I cannot even tell you how thrilled I am to be able to introduce something to the wine world that is really going to make a difference. Billions of glasses of wine someday soon are going to taste better. And I know it because some of the greatest wine experts in the world have already said this is the most significant device to come along in a very long time for the wine industry. And I'm convinced as well. So I'm so thrilled that I was able to engage partners that were able to get this done. And I just want to really shout out to our chief engineer, Doug Lincoln, who really brought the whole thing together and made it a reality. There were so many people that contributed to this and the first production models are now available. It sells for $129.95. That is such a tiny price when you consider the fact that you can literally change the perceptible value of a bottle of wine by a large degree instantly. So, you know, literally a few bottles down the road, you're done. The device is paid for. It's just amazing. All right. Okay. I know I'm going on and on, but I have to. I'm just that excited about it. If you want to see it, you can go to our website, grapeencounters.com. It's going to be there, grapeencounters.com. If you want to be one of the first to own it, you can purchase it right there as well, $129.95. It's the Infusair. You're going to see just how beautiful it is. I mean, it really is a work of art. A lot goes into it. It looks very simple on the outside. It's not so simple on the inside. There's a lot going on in there, and it really will change the way you enjoy wine more than anything that you have ever experienced before. So check it out, grapeencounters.com, the Infusair. And by the way, if you want one, get one now because, you know, the first runs are much smaller than what we're going to have later on. If you want one, I really encourage you to jump online and grab one now. You are going to love it. Absolutely love it. All right, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes and we will jump into the Grape Encounters news. What's going on in the world of wine when we return with Grape Encounters Radio. This is Grape Encounters News, a taste of what's happening in the world of wine. I read the news. 
This week, Grape Encounters Radio takes you all over the globe to talk about the bright and not-so-bright side of our favorite adult beverage. First, does one popular French grape's origin actually trace back to Spain? It's currently my go-to varietal for 2017, and I'd hate to think that I've been giving all of you inaccurate information. Nonetheless, we refuse to be accused of fake news, so I'll tell you what I know thus far. Next, even though we do our best to keep our distance from all of the politics that has us consuming more wine than usual, one can't help but ask the burning question, just what exactly happens when you boycott Trump wines? When it comes to our new president, we're starting to get used to the fact that reality often trumps conventional wisdom. After that, the benefits of being a student at one of the most prestigious wine-growing educational institutions, followed by a story of an insect that causes havoc in the winery that really stinks. And I mean that both figuratively and literally. All this on today's edition of Grape Encounters News. The Cabernet family, a.k.a. the Bordeaux Bunch, includes some of the world's most popular and planted wine grapes. And while some of these grapes are definitely from the region that shares their family name, it seems that the number of these Bordeaux grapes that are actually from the region may be fewer than we once thought. Recent research done in Navarra, Spain, has suggested that Cabernet Franc, one of the three most important of the red Bordelais grapes, may in fact come from Spain. Navarra's viticultural institution has been delving in deep to discover the enological roots of the region that led them to propose this theory. Older research has actually suggested the same thing. Grape geneticists have hypothesized that Cab Franc was born in Basque country, which includes Navarra within its historic borders. Offspring Cabernet Sauvignon's origins are murkier, but a bit of evidence to help support this idea is the fact that the Spanish Basque grape Hondurabi Belza is a Cab Franc relative. Will this debate increase tensions in the already fraught France-Spain wine world? The thought of more wine trucks being intercepted and emptied out onto the highway keeps me up at night in a cold sweat. If you're still suffering from post-election fatigue, you might want to cover your ears for this next segment. Anti-Trumpers in Virginia have failed catastrophically in their attempt to stop people from buying Trump wines. Supermarket chain Wegmans, also a target of the boycott organized by a group called Stop Trump Wine, sold out of their entire stock in all of its Virginia stores with the exception of one, which was reported as having a few bottles left last Friday. As part of the resistance against the new president's election, protesters have been boycotting Trump-branded products and the stores that carry them all across the country. The results so far have been mixed, with some companies dropping Trump merchandise and others seen massive spikes in sales. Wegmans has carried Trump's lineup of vino prior to the New York businessman turned president acquiring the old Cluj winery and stands by their decision as not being politically motivated. As many of you will know by now, the commander-in-chief has a winery in his portfolio of assets, or at least he did until he passed the vines over to his son Eric in 2011. Love him or loathe him, whether you're a boycotter or have stockpiled enough of Trump's wines to last you through the apocalypse, the Donald and company certainly seem to be on a roll. 
But here's some great news from the realm of academia. Students of the Vine are getting a chance to shine. Thanks to a handy new Senate bill, students at UC Davis's elite winemaking school can now sell their wines to the public. Due to some silly and totally outdated state law, winemaking Aggies were forced to dump their wine down the drain. If that doesn't sound horrifying enough, listen to this. The school gets most of its grapes from some of the creme de la creme of Napa Valley's vineyards. Oh, the inhumanity. Oh, the waste. For shame. Thankfully, the situation has been rectified, and if you're local to the area, you can anticipate seeing bottles cropping up on shelves. Expectations are the Davis wine will retail for around 80 to 100 bucks. Ouch! But all bottles of vino sold will go directly back into Davis's wine programs and help fund the excellent research done at the university. Things should be ready to go by the end of the year, and I know I'll try and get my hands on some. After all, I've always been a huge supporter of higher education. And if helping young and fertile minds develop by drinking what I've been told are some truly exceptional wines, then count me in. Speaking of Aggies, here's an agricultural nightmare threatening the grape. If you're a home gardener, you've probably encountered a stink bug or two in your time. And these odiferous pests are now an annoyance that has officially made it onto the Vintner's hit list. The bug is native to China, Korea, and Japan, and was accidentally introduced here in the 90s. Since then, it has spread across the nation and become the bane of farmers everywhere. It's bad enough as it is that this beastie damages almost every crop you can imagine by piercing the plant tissues and feasting on their vital, nutrient-rich saps. It sucks, literally. But what makes these little stink bombs even worse is that they're partial to grapes. And sometimes they can make their way into the fermentation tank and end up becoming part of the wine. All it takes is a small entourage of odiferous intruders to turn grapes oh-so-fine into Franken-wine. The bugs only seem to affect red wines, giving them a musty smell that's reminiscent of cilantro. Not so bad. Hopefully they can find a way to control these pesky critters. I know I'll feel much better if I don't need to worry if my bottle of cab isn't actually full of Beetlejuice. that's going to do it for the Grape Encounters news this week. In fact, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. We'll be back next week with another edition of the show that always makes you look smart at dinner parties. We'll see you then. This week's Grape Encounters is down to the last drop. Don't let that trouble you. We're headed down to the wine cellar in search of something remarkably special to share with you next week. Until then, we've got hundreds upon hundreds of past episodes ready to be uncorked at GrapeEncounters.com. Help yourself to anything you'd like.